Uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13. Uh, But before we do, Christians talk a lot about love, don't we? Uh, Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul says, O no no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, and he lists the commandments, uh, and he summarizes them in the end of verse 9, it is briefly comprehended in the saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Of course, remember Jesus' words on the night before he was betrayed in John chapter 13 in the upper room, in the upper room discourse. Jesus talks about love with his disciples as well in John 13, uh, verse 31. Jesus says, therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, Whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. And of course, John continues uh, this idea of love for the brethren in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. You don't have to turn to these. But John says, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. But what is love? That's one of those abstract things, it seems to us. Uh, uh, not, where's the concreteness to it? Uh, it, it just seems... Uh, like like a cloud in the air we're trying to grasp. What is love? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13, and really the rest of the, of the chapter there, it fleshes out the good and acceptable per- and perfect will of God that we talked about in verse 2, where, where Paul says in verse 1, I urge you, I beg of you, I exhort you, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, or your spiritual worship. And then verse 2 he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove or test what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that good and acceptable and perfect will of God is now going to be flushed out here. In verses 9 through 13. This is our reasonable service. This is our spiritual worship as a living sacrifice. You and I can say, I love the church. But 9 through 13, more specifically, is what that looks like. You'll notice as you uh, look at the passage that we read this morning that there's a lot of action verbs because love is not a feeling, it's an action. Love has shoes on. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21, John again says, We love Him because He first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment I have, and this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now, in verse six through eight that we saw last time, and, and just to uh, just to remind us of this, and I need to adjust this. We looked at the different gifts last time. 
And verses 6 through 8 uh, tell us how, uh, how we are a living sacrifice by pursuing the will of God, by exercising our gifts. By exercising our gifts. Now, not, verses 9, really through the end of the chapter, is going to tell us how to be a living sacrifice by pursuing the will of God, by exercising grace. I mean, look at uh, some of the gifts of, of prophecy and, and, uh, and teaching, etc. here. Serving. Scroll through these here. How many of you maybe start to understand a little bit more of how you were made? Your gifts from the last time. How many of you started that process of thinking about that? Hopefully. Because Paul says, use your gifts for the betterment of the church. And we looked at the gifts and, and, and really a, a, a flyover. Uh, really couldn't spend a whole lot of time in each one of them. Uh, but just to give you a, a framework and a sketch of, of what, the, what the gifts are. Now in verses 9 through 13... If 6 through 8 was exercising our gifts, 9 through 13, and really the rest of the chapter, are exercising grace. Exercising grace. Did you catch what John said when he said, we love the brother, brethren? How? Why? Because God loved us. It's the overflow. It's the response here. And so I want you to see this morning that real body love, church body love, local church love, purifies, it bonds, it affirms, it serves, it anchors, and it shares. First of all, look in the text. Verse 9. Notice what Paul says. Let love be without dissimulation. Now, I want you to notice here that love is so basic to the church, the local church, that Paul doesn't even tell us to love. Paul tells us to make sure that the love we have is genuine. The passage really reads here, in a paraphrase, because all the things that come after that phrase, let love be without dissimulation, all the things that come after that phrase are now descriptive marks of what love is. The passage really reads then, love is genuine. Abhors the evil, clings to the good, devoted to one another with brotherly love, outdoing one another, showing honor, not lacking in zeal, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, being patient in affliction, persevering in prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now you notice as I read that, there weren't commands in there. There weren't commands. And really, there are no action verbs. It's all in the language, if you're familiar with, with, uh, with grammar, there are all participles. They all follow this phrase, genuine love, and then describe what genuine love is. The King James translates verse 9 as, let love be without dissimulation. Literally, the little rending is, the love sincere. The love sincere. Translators have added some of those words here to understand the, the force of it that, it, that that it isn't implied as a command, but uh, that's, that's not in the original. They supplied that imperative verb there. Uh, <clears throat> Paul is literally saying, let love be without hypocrisy. Not hypocritical. 
That word uh, without dissimulation. That's the, the word uh, for, 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 for without hypocrisy. And, and the idea here is that Paul wants Christians to avoid love that is mere play acting. And the way we can avoid love that is mere play acting is by putting into practice how he describes love here. In other words, love isn't to be merely pretense or an outward display or emotion ultimately. But love is real as God's love and action to us is real. We don't just pretend and say or say we love others. We really love them and here's how. So, 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 so look with me at verses 10 through 13 at here's how. First thing I want you to understand is that love purifies. Love purifies. He says, Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Abhor. That's, this, this word uh, in the original is used one time in the entire New Testament. It's a very strong word. It means to hate exceedingly. To hate exceedingly. Genuine love does not avoid doing right. And it doesn't lead others to do evil. And it is not passive about what God calls evil, but genuine love is repulsed by it. Even the things that culture and society says aren't a big deal, that God says is a big deal, love takes God's side and says, no, that is a big deal. Because we need God's holy perspective to hate what He hates if we have real love. Because evil isn't passive. We can't be either. Evil destroys. Evil has an agenda. If we're to love genuinely, Holy Spirit wants us to understand here, then we need to be pure. And real love purifies. You see, evil never benefits the one we love. Evil never benefits our beloved. So we need to hate evil. The person who really loves with a deep love of verse 9, real genuine love, will have a holy hatred for evil because of what evil does to the bride of Christ. Who is his beloved. So that's why Paul says, Abhor that which is evil, as one of the first benchmarks here, under real genuine love. And then he says, on the other hand, there's always a balance here, Abhor what is evil, hate exceedingly what is evil. On the other hand, he says, Cleave to that which is good. And that word cleave is a great word. It's the word used in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, A man will leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. All right? It means to be, to, to be uh, joined. It means to, to be wrapped up into it. And so somebody who loves genuinely uh, hates what is evil because of what it does to the beloved bride of Christ. But they love what God loves. They cleave to it. They're wrapped up into what is good. So real love, love has, a, has an attitude of purity. It's concerned about the best interest of others. Which is hating evil as God hates it. And loving what is good, leaving to what is good. And now notice what he says in verse 10. He says, not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, I'm sorry, read verse 11, verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, and honor preferring one another. Now Paul gives us the context for this love. What kind of love is it? Brotherly love. It's the, it's the Philadelphia love. The brotherly love. That's the love uh, that, that, that is in a family. A tender affection kind of a love. Uh, it's referring to the family of God relationships here. So remember what Jesus said in, in Luke about who our real family is? 
Jesus says, my family, my mother, my father, my brothers and sisters are the ones who hear my words and do it. Believers. Okay? So that is your, that is your real, ultimately your real family. Those are the ones you are going to be with uh, in eternity. And until that time you pray, you live out uh, the, the gospel, and you witness to those are your real, your biological family. But understand this, that you are more closely related as a believer to that person who is sitting next to you or across the room from you than you are to anybody in your family who doesn't know Christ. That's the truth. That doesn't mean you don't love your biological family. But God wants us to understand that in His design, He places a high priority on His bride as His family. At South Hope, we've been brought into relationship with the Father by our older brother, Jesus Christ. He has gone and paved the way. He has died for us. He has been resurrected as the first fruits. He has given us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're to be devoted to one another. Notice what Paul says. Be kindly affectioned one to another. That word kindly, uh, uh, that the King James translators have translated as kindly, isn't the idea of kind as in be kind, tender heart. It's the idea of in accordance to the kind. To our kind. So, so it's the idea of, um, of being devoted to the household of God. Who is your kind? Your kind, First Peter 2 says, is you, you are a chosen generation. You are a unique, privileged people because of God's mercy. That is the kind of people that Paul wants you to be affectioned to. Because we're believers together. The household of God. You see, the local church is a family of families. And it's, it's, it's your extended family who are in fellowship with one another because they are in fellowship with Christ. If we had a tuning fork here, we, we, we struck that tuning fork, everything that matched the pitch of that tuning fork would begin to echo that. The Lord Jesus Christ brings us into fellowship with one another if we are in fellowship with Christ. And Paul is telling us that we have a concern and care for one another as a family would. That's the real love or the household of God that others would normally only see in their natural family. So in verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. That's what he's talking about, is a love that bonds. It bonds. But notice the next phrase. He says, in honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. <clears throat> this is the idea of, uh, of, of, of being eager and anxious to honor each other. Love puts others first. It, it practices affirmation and building each other up. It edifies and exhorts and encourages. It puts itself last and pushes others to the front. It recognizes others' contributions in the body and the image of God in others and God's grace through them. And it thanks the Lord for them. And not just in silent and quiet. But it expresses that. It notices and recognizes others' accomplishments without jealousy. It defers to others. It rejoices in and honors the good qualities in others. It appreciates others. 
and lets them know about it. Now, Bruce is really good at this. I don't want to embarrass Bruce. But Bruce has a way of, when you talk to Bruce, he has a way of encouraging you and exhorting you. And, 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 and just very has a very thankful spirit about who you are. I appreciate that about Bruce. That's an affirming spirit. That's the idea here of in honor preferring one another. Eager and anxious to honor people. It sees signs of grace in others and it's excited to bring that to the forefront. Not to put that person in the spotlight ultimately, but to put God and His work of grace in the spotlight. It's an affirming love. That's real love here. It's a purifying, it's a bonding love, it's an affirming love. And then look what he says here. 11. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He says love is action again. And this action is to be carried out in zeal, not spiritual laziness. Not sloth or lazy and busyness. That means that, that real love is, is, ready, it's work. It's hard work. It's got to be effort. Because it's really easy to just ignore it. To not put effort into real love. A lack of it indicates, among other things, a lack of real love in our lives indicates, among other things, spiritual laziness. Perhaps it's a, it's a picture of passion, uh, of lacking passion in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 that Paul talks about uh, with the uh, Laodicean church. He says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. There was a fervency that wasn't there. They didn't have the love that they had at first. And, uh, and, 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 and uh, Paul knows we need help in this area. And so he says to allow the Holy Spirit to set us on fire. And look what it says there. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I believe that spirit there it should be capitalized. Because Paul here is saying that a fervent spirit, uh, your attitude, uh, that only comes from the Holy Spirit. He's saying uh, we need to do that word fervent there means to literally boil over, to seethe, to be passionately fueled by the Spirit, to serve the Master by serving His body. Being set on fire by the Spirit results in serving the Lord in humble service of His church. And so, Paul says, we need to be set aglow by the Spirit of God to serve. Because we serve no ordinary master. In fact, if you go back with me in Romans chapter 5, this real love with shoes on, Romans 5, 5 says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. There's the source of our love. It serves. John Phillips says, The inner springs of the believer's life must be so fired by the Spirit that he continually boils over with enthusiasm in his service for the Lord. I don't know if you noticed this about Charlie Marks, but Charlie is not one of these people who's apathetic about things. He's kind of cool keel about everything. 
When he puts his shoulder to the harness, he puts his shoulder to the harness, alright? He gets with it. He works. He serves. And I'm thankful for people like that and others in our congregation who, who, uh, who, who carry out the work of God with zeal. They're passionate about it. They're, they're, they've been set aglow by the Spirit of God. They understand that they're not serving any ordinary master here. This is one who, who we are privileged to serve. And it carries over. The songwriter says, Teach me to love thee as thine angels love, one holy passion filling all my frame. The baptism of the heaven descended dove, my heart an altar, and thy love the flame. You see, when we grasp who we are as a relationship and, and, and the purity of, of our love and we build each other up, uh, we, have to, we have to get back to the source of the Holy Spirit and, and allowing this to continue to happen and, and serve one another in love. But notice the next verses here. Verse 12. Here's the anchor. Here's the anchor for all of this. Because the Holy Spirit isn't just going to happen by default here. In our lives, we, there's a yieldedness, there's a uh, dependence on Him. Verse 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. There's an anchor here. So these next admonitions here in verse 12 uh, perhaps are the secret to not lose steam to be lazy spiritually. To serve in zeal. To be set on fire by the Spirit to serve the Master. And there's three things here. Here are the anchors. Hope, endure, Pray. Hope, endure, pray. You see, as far as Paul was concerned, affliction was par for the course for believers. He reminds the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, he says, in essence, you know quite well you were destined for suffering. He says. And Philippians 1.29, he reminds them that they have been that it has been granted to them, given to them on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. You could also say, even in earlier part of this book, in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, that we also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that God uses them to produce perseverance, which in turn develops character. He says in chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. Certainly in chapter 8 of Romans, he's convinced that afflictions cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And that God Himself comforts us in all our afflictions. 2 Corinthians 1. He knows that compared to the glory to be revealed in us, the afflictions of God's people are but light and momentary. 2 Corinthians 4. He also knows that God will pay back those who afflict His people in 2 Thessalonians 1. And so Paul can talk about rejoicing in affliction. Ironically. And here in 12, he urges his audience to be patient in tribulation, rejoicing in hope. Patient in affliction. Rejoicing in hope. Knowing that taking up the cross and following Christ, as Randy and and Curtis saying this morning, will lead us to glory and to crown. This is the promise of God we hope in. So when he says rejoice in hope, that's the vision we need to have before our eyes. Because believers rejoice in the hope of their salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 They rejoice in the hope of their justification. Galatians 5 They rejoice in their glorious inheritance. Ephesians 1 And they rejoice in their share of the glory of God. And just to really cement this for us, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, please. 
First Peter 1. The anchors for our love. First Peter 1. Verse 7. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the hope of our salvation. That's the share of the glory that, that we are to rejoice in. If we have that vision there, then Paul says in Romans 12, verse 12, then be patient in tribulation. And patient doesn't really capture it here. It's the idea of enduring. Enduring under duress. Enduring. If we understand the hope, we can press on. We can endure. We can bear up in trial and testing. So hope, endure, but here's where we need our resources refilled. Look at the last part of verse 12. Continuing instant in prayer. Pray. We can only endure and understand the hope of our love, the anchor of our love, as we have, uh, as we act in dependence upon God for His strength in prayer. That idea of continuing instant is the idea of persisting in prayer. Persisting in prayer. That word here used to persist in prayer means to occupy oneself diligently with. There's a very similar exhortation in Colossians uh, chapter 4 and verse 2. Paul gives to the believers at Colossae where Paul says, continue in prayer. Continue in prayer. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. Continue. Persist. Occupy oneself diligently with prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Uh, Cranfield says, in the need for persistence in prayer, he says, but it is precisely this thing which is altogether vital and necessary. If he is to endure, which he is specially tempted, whether through sloth or discouragement or self-confidence to give up, hence the special frequency which the verb to continue or persevere is used. Why would he tell us to continue in prayer? Because we probably wouldn't feel like praying. But he knows that's what we need for the anchor for real love. Hope, endure, pray. And the next picture of love here. If that's if that's our anchor, then as we close here, verse 13 is... Sharing. He says, distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. That word, um, distributing, it's a really interesting word. It's actually the word uh, uh, that we get our word uh, uh, fellowship from. Translate fellowship many times. Uh, it's the word koinonia. And it means to share. A fellowship with the needs of the believers. To share with the needs of believers. And particularly here, these are material needs. This is sharing our material goods and money with resources of believers who need our help. Distributing to the necessity of the saints and needs of the saints. Pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? But then he adds another layer to it. 
given to hospitality. Given to hospitality. Now this is interesting. Here. Because certainly uh, we, we can understand distributing the needs of saints. Um, we can understand that if there is a need in our congregation, we will do our best to, to try to meet that need. But when sharing takes place under your roof, this is hospitality. That's the difference. It's under your roof. The word hospitality there literally means love for strangers. Love for strangers. Jesus, you remember in Matthew 10 when he sends his disciples out, he tells them to really depend on other people's hospitality. Other people in the kingdom depend on their hospitality to take them in, take care of them in Matthew 10, 11. You see, without Christian hospitality in that first century, the gospel would not have advanced. Unbelievers wouldn't, have, wouldn't take care of the traveling ministers. It was the burden of the early church too. Those who hosted the, the church in their homes, as you'll find frequently in the New Testament, those who tra- uh, hosted traveling believers, they were investing a great amount in the kingdom of God. And the other way we are to share, according to verse 13, is not just give uh, possessions uh, and resources to people, it's also to share our homes. This involves specifically, here, if we're going to practice hospitality, your home. Shelter and food for Christians who are passing through. Look, turn with me to, to uh, 3 John. If you can't find it, find 1 John. Find Revelation, and it's right there. 3 John, it's one chapter, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such, that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Barbara Young is a wonderful picture of this hospitality. You see the greatness of that truth connected to eternal things? Paul uses a word here in verse 13 that just says in our English translation, given, given hospitality. Like, you should um, have a, that would be a nice thing to do. But the original word there is an extremely strong word. It's a word that you could translate as pursue. In fact, it is the same word used in verse 14 as persecute. It's translated persecute. Bless them which persecute you. Paul literally says in verse 13, persecuting to hospitality. It's the same word. And basically, it means considerable effort given toward hospitality. It has the idea of hunting down, pursuing, not being lazy about it, but diligent. Not hoping someone else will do it, but jumping in to volunteer. It's going out of our way to welcome and provide for those passing through. It's actually proactively 
pursuing opportunities for hospitality. Not even just waiting for them to come up, to come, but to be proactive about it, to do it gladly, not grudgingly. That's the weight of this text here on us here. Pursuing hospitality. When we have folks who come through and, and need a meal or, or a place to stay, um, according to this text, there should, the, the difficulty should be deciding who, who they go to because there's so many people who say, I'll take them. And that needs to change, that's all hope. It's a weakness in my life. And it's a weakness generally of our congregation. Do it gladly, not grudgingly. Because here's this. Jesus takes this so seriously that remember that whatever is done for that person in need of hospitality and Matthew, Jesus said is done for the one who died for them at Judgment Day. Jesus says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. When did we welcome you? When you did it unto the least of but what Holy Spirit is telling us in this text here is that at the end of here is that for real love, for your joy, go out of your way to practice this grace eagerly. That's what he's telling us. You see, nobody loses who follows this. You don't lose out. And maybe we have to uh, unravel and detox in our minds the difference between what we think entertaining people is and showing hospitality. Entertaining uh, is, 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 might be part of hospitality, but it's, it's a small part. Hospitality is being open-armed, welcoming. That's hospitality. In fact, Paul will say in Romans chapter 15, <clears throat> he will say in verse 7, Wherefore, receive ye one another, or welcome, or accept one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. What if the Lord Jesus Christ showed hospitality the way that you and I do to others? We wouldn't be sitting here, would we? A lot of us, I wouldn't be. So for your joy, go out of your way to practice this. Nobody loses who follows God's pattern here for real body love. The story is uh, told of a farmer who was quite prosperous as a farmer, known for his prosperity, but he's very generous to the cause of Christ and His kingdom. Showed lavish generosity to people out of what God has blessed them. And people asked him why. This is the only thing he could say. I keep shoveling in the God's bin, and God keeps shoveling back into mine, and God has the bigger shovel. Perhaps you've heard it said this way, you can't outgive God. That's what he said. You see, these descriptions here in Romans chapter 12, which I fall so short, fall so short of our real love. And this is a huge part of what it means to be a living sacrifice with a renewed mind. So next time you're told to love, maybe you can think of verses 9 through 13 specifically of how to love. This is what a renewed mind is. This is what following the Lord with and His perfect will is. This is what proving that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect to the watching world and yourself is. This is real love, and real love acts. This, folks, is how to love your family with shoes on. Let's pray.